Good morning, church. I'm going to read the word this morning. Word of God this morning comes from 1 Samuel 21 through 22 and verse 5. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, truly women have been kept, uh, uh, kept from us as always when I go on expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their, ves- their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread but the bread of the the presence, which is removed from the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servant of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Dueg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Uh, Then have you not a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day and saw, from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, is, is not this David the king of the land? Did not they sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down the thousands and David his ten thousands. Then David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the door of the gate and let spittle run down his beard. Then Atchish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why have you then brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought his fellows to behave as madmen in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his his father's house heard it, they went down from there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. 
And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother stay with you till I know what God will do with me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet said, The prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and and went into the forest of Herath. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Good morning, Christ Central Church. My name is Josh Kim. I'm one of the assistant pastors here. And uh, again, we'd like to welcome back our pastor from a vacation. And as we welcome that, we're excited to hear from him next week. And I just want to thank you, church, for being a church that cares for our pastors like this and really wants to send them on a vacation so they could recharge, be restored, and come back um, as we look to the fall season in our church. Today, we're continuing our sermon series through 1 Samuel. And last month, we looked at topic of friendship, and we're really excited about the first week, so please do come And we're going to talk about our applications from this past month as we looked at the friendship between Jonathan and David and different relationships we saw there. But today, we're going to continue from there to the 1 Samuel 21. And what we find in this chapter is that though the theme, we're moving on from friendship to now looking at the broader narrative at large now, but the circumstances that David was placed in doesn't really change that much. Last time we saw that David was running away from Saul and was facing threats to his life. And when we come to chapter 21 of 1 Samuel, we find that he is still running from Saul, who is vowing to kill him. And now the question that we have to answer is, how is David going to respond to this threat that happens in his life? Again, David a man after God's own heart, the great champion, a mighty warrior, as we saw thus far. How does this king-to-be respond in the face of harsh circumstances that he was facing today? How does he respond to the threat that he was facing to his life? And perhaps what we want to expect And perhaps what we're used to expecting from David is kind of like a superheroes that we like to watch. And we want to see David rising to the occasion, right? And we expect David to be faithful to the call that God has given him. We expect David to respond and to kind of model for us what it means to be God's chosen servant. We expect David unshaken, resolved in his commitment to the Lord. We expect David who slay Goliath who killed 200 Philistines, spear-baiting, faithful friend who is full of wisdom beyond his years to show up and remain faithful to the Lord. And that's what we expect from this text. But just like what we read this now, but this story that we read today doesn't portray that picture of David. Rather, we find David afraid. He's rather than standing up to Saul, as a rightful anointed king, you see him being gripped with fear. You see him being fearful for his life. You see him actually using others, lying, flawed as you can be in the light 
of the danger that presents them. And as rightly as we are disappointed, perhaps surprised at how he's reacting, and as often is the case of our biblical characters, David in this chapter is a reflection of how we tend to act and react and when we are faced with hardships that come our way and when we go through testing times. David in these chapters actually is a reflection of how you and I respond. Sometimes, and some of us, may display unresolved, unshaken faith in the face of trials. But more often than not, we fall similarly with David. We fall into the patterns of fear, human fear, and the flaws are often on full display when things do not go our way. The question for us is, then what does God do with that? Like, what if I process our reaction and I cry, it's not as perfect as we hoped it would be. What if we come out of the other side, not victorious, not triumphant? Rather, we come out of the other side, barely holding on to the grace of God, hoping and just hoping that we'll pass by this. What if we are just dishonorable, actually, in our actions? And what if we keep on grumbling again and again, just like the Israelites were, during the wilderness, the entire time we go through difficult times? What if our hearts are restless, just like you and I are right now during this pandemic through racial injustice? What if we failed miserably to trust in the Lord and made mess of it more often than not? Is God done with us? Does God give up on us during this time? And if that's how you feel this morning, you got a friend in David. David in chapters 21-22 is not a picture of someone you want to follow when he's in trouble. He's far from what we picture man after God's own heart to be acting like. He's actively deceiving, lying, acting like a madman, full of fear, finding refuge in the hands of sworn enemies rather than God who delivered him. He looks so much more like something or someone that he's running away from rather than looking anything like next anointed king of Israel. So what can we learn in all this? What do we learn from his flaws and failures and fears? And what we see is our God does not give up on David. And despite his unfaithfulness, we see God still carrying out his plan of redemption as flawed as David can be through his kingship. So join with me this morning as we examine this story that begins with David's fear in the city of Nob. We see David's fear on full display in the first city that he comes to on this chapter 21. David is on the, on the run here, as we find in the beginning verses. And the first place actually David runs to is in Nob, only about two miles south of Saul's home, actually, in Gibeah. And in Nob, what we find is a tabernacle, a temple, a place where God was to be worshipped. You could actually say David is running to church 
fleeing from the issues of the day and fleeing from the dangers, he goes to church and he meets a pastor, he meets a priest. Perhaps he's going there to seek a counsel. Perhaps we hope that he's running to church looking for counsel, for help. But when he gets to the tabernacle here, he's met with the priest who realizes that David is on a run. Perhaps it is well known that Saul detests David so much that he knows and he's trembling in fear as David comes to him. That's what it says in verse 1. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? So what would David should say to the priest? Man of God, right? Does he come clean and say, Amen. I'm running. Help me here. I am the next anointed king. You are God's priest. Help me, brother. Help me. Is that what David does? Absolutely not. He actually turns to falsehood. He straight up lies to get what he wants. Verse 2, David said to Himelech, the priest, The king has charged me with the matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you, and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with a young man for such and such a place. David claims to be on a mission from the king. Some commentator here tries to make excuses for David by saying, well, you know, he's, he's put in a place where he can't do much about it, right? But there's no way around it. He flat out lied. His deception is clearly evident, although the scripture does not explicitly condemn it here, but he is lying here. Remember, this is David, God's anointed, in God's house, lying to God's priest. You get the picture? He's as flawed as you can be. He's gripped with fear for his life and is willing to use others for his gain. And that's not all, right? Our hope of David perhaps stopping by to get counsel from this priest. Perhaps he's there so he could be prayed over. Maybe he needs to be reminded of God's presence in his life. But that's not what he's seeking. What he's seeking is for food. And that's what he says in verse 3. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. So what we see is the priest upon the the request from David gives this holy bread and the David and his men is able to eat this and are strengthened by it. Now, there's nothing wrong with seeking for food on his travel as we see the priest providing it. And I'm not going to spend too much on time on this, but in the New Testament, in Matthew 12, we see Jesus making a reference to this incident in the gospel where he affirms this act of mercy of the temple. And what we need to make sure is that Jesus is not, condo- uh, not condoning David's actions of lying and using the priest. Rather, what Jesus does is to quote this incident in Matthew 12 to make this case about Sabbath obligations, meaning what happens in the Lord's day and Sunday for us now. And Jesus is meaning that intent of the law was fulfilled by act of mercy. The God provided act of mercy to David through the priestly holy bread that was meant to be eaten for the priest after it served its purpose. So Jesus is uh, commending and also praising the act of mercy of the priest, talking about the Sabbath restrictions. So David here took full advantage of this mercy 
but again, at the expense of the priest's life. He even says this journey that he's, uh, he's on is not an ordinary journey. He's abusing his authority as the, the king's commander. What makes this incident more abhorrent, more maddening, is that David knew exactly what would happen to the priest that offered disgrace to him. Verse 7 has this little detail that we tend to skip over. It says, verse 7 says, Now a certain man of the servant of Saul was there that day. He was watching this whole thing, detained before the Lord. His name was Duad, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. You see, there was someone in Saul's herdsmen watching this on full display. And if you thought that Saul was a madman trying to kill his own son for protecting David, guess what's going to happen to this priest? Later on in 1 Samuel 22, verse 22, it says, And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day, and this is David confessing here, right? When Duag, the Edomite, was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. You see, David knew exactly what was going to happen, and the fate of the priest was in his hands. And what did this king, uh, God's anointed, do? What did he do when he's faced with this trouble? He simply did not care for the life of the priest. He was selfish. He lied. He risked others' life out of fear for his own. He used others so he can escape. He absolutely detested others' life for his own gain. And that's not all, church. Look at verse 8. Then David said to Abimelech, Have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business requires haste. Doesn't make any sense, right? And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that is here. There's no other weapons but that as a war memorial in this place. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. Remember David, a boy warrior who stood up to Goliath with a slingshot. God's warrior who refused to wear the armor that Saul wanted to place upon him, but rather putting his trust in God to deliver him against this gigantic enemy of God. A warrior who was praised as mighty because God was with him. The sight of this sword should have reminded David that God is actually the one that will deliver him. The sword of Goliath, which was preserved as a war memorial, a reminder for the Israelites, not only for the Israelites, but for David, who, he, who is protecting him. This sword, the highlight, perhaps the pinnacle of his career as the warrior may be, this sword should have reminded David, trust God. You are the anointed king. Look at what God did with you, through you, in slaying this giant, Goliath. But notice what David says upon looking at this sword. He says, there is none like that. Give it to me. There's none like that. I need that. 
I want that to protect me. David's fear is gripped once again. This mighty warrior who once placed his faith in God now places that faith in the exact sword that he was fighting against for protection. David, who once placed absolute trust in the God of the universe, now stands in opposition to God of the universe. And before we lament David's failures and fears, church, let's be honest. This is how we also react. This is how we also react when things do not go our way. This is how we often react when God seems to be absent. How often have we forgotten who sustains us? How often you and I have forgotten how God has delivered us in the past? How quickly we forget that it was God who led us out of the desert. How quickly we forget that it was God that sustains, that provides, that will lead us. How quickly we forget that we're called not only to live before the eyes of the Lord, live in the holy fear of the Lord, but how often, how quickly we forget that we ought to consider others better than ourselves and consider others' lives just as worthy as ours. How quickly we forget that we've all, we fight for our own rights better than we fight against the lives of those who are suffering. I know a lot of us are zoomed out. I am too. And in my many Zoom conversations with some of you, but there's, on, there's some joy that comes in the Zoom meetings. And those joys are when the children happen to come into the picture and you get to see children during our calls. And then I realized even last week when we had our evening service, our, our kids grow fast. I realized it's been like five months now and wow, they grow real fast. Um, then it's, we long to see your children. Uh, like that too. And my son is going really fast too. I mean, his leaps and bounds, I think he's so tall now. Um, and my son was generally a little bit slower with development in a lot of things. I mean, he, he crawled until like 18 months. Um, he walked really late. And there was a moment when uh, we were concerned that he might not speak. And we were thinking like we might need to get him a speech therapist. And now he won't stop speaking, right? I can't get him to stop. So um, but also, along with the growth that he has experienced, we also realize he's growing in sin. And just the other day, I found him on his iPad without permission. And parents, I'm with you. I think we're, yes, I'm with you. I'm, I'm one of you, right? We're giving a lot of insane amount of screen time for some kind of sanity in our lives. I get that. Hang in there. We're praying for you, especially with the school. Let's, let's pray through this together, right? Um, but I found him with his iPad hidden away from us. And when I found him playing with his iPad without permission, I asked him, son, what are you doing? And what is his first response? You know, I was really hoping that he would say, I'm so sorry, daddy. I was hoping that I've sinned. Take not thy spirit from me. Like, woe is me, my father. What have I done to you? Like, sorry, forgive me. Here's my life. Take it. Search me, O Lord. I mean, search me, O father. And, you know, find offensive way in me. That's what I was hoping for, right? But no, he simply says, nothing. I'm like, you, like, nothing? There's an iPad in front of you, right? And I was like, Seth? And, of course, he would say, 
And I'm hoping by now you'll get it, right? No, he doesn't. He says, mom told me to, mom told me it's okay. I'm like, what? This is my innocent five-year-old son lying through his teeth. He's not innocent, right? Using others at such an early age to gain what I want. And that fear gripped him. And we realized that's what fear does to us. And as much as it broke my heart as I had to discipline him, it also reminded me of how I often deal with my fears when I'm pushed into trials like this. Church, when fear grips our heart, just like David, just like my son, first thing that goes out of the window is fear of living before the eyes of our Lord. Where our own lives are threatened, we go the opposite of Christ-likeness in what we do not love others as ourselves. And often, rather than going to our mentors, our spiritual elders, and perhaps our friends and fa- uh, family, our church, before an important decision to be, to be made, and rather than being humble, be willing to learn to submit, we're often the type that conceals our actions and plans. And once we're found out and do not things go real well in our ways, we often try to hide our wickedness, our sin, and we seek forgiveness for actions you knew were wrong to begin with. But this is grace that beckons us to repentance. Notice the grace of God here that is evident, even through the fears that David experiences in the city of Nob. Notice what God does here. Even in the midst of the shadow of death, God is present through the temple. Through priest's mercy, God provides food for David and his men. He also reminds David of who delivered him as the only weapon that was available in this place was Goliath's sword. God is actively working to remind David that he alone is his help. God's grace, church, is here for us as well. Do you believe that God is present in your life? We in the church use the term means of grace. Our pastor talked about that in the opening. It's a way God uses means to communicate his grace to us. And that's the word of God, prayer, and sacraments. And oh boy, I don't know about you, but I really, really am grateful for our time of Lord's Supper last Sunday evening. We needed that time, I think. We needed that time of worship. And you and I need this time of worship. You and I need to be sitting under the word of the Lord. You and I need to be reminded us of God's grace. You need to be reminded of that God's grace is available and evident to fight against the fear that grips us in light of what is going on in this world. That's why some of us need to come for prayer after the service in red chairs to receive prayers. Some of us need to pray. Some of us need to open up our scripture, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so as our mission statement describes, so that we can re-engage the world with others, not with fear, but with renewed dignity that comes from Christ and Christ alone. That's why we do this thing. That's why we gather on Sunday. That's why we want you to worship the Lord. And that's what David needed. And grace was available.
even despite his continuous journey towards fear. And that's what we find in the second point, the fear in Gath. By now, we know that David is on a downward spiral. Rather than running towards God, we find him running away. One of the, the, not fun, but key elements of the Old Testament that you could find, anytime someone is going away from Jerusalem, they're in trouble, right? They're not supposed to be going away from God's place because Old Testament is come and see. So it means I think it's for us too. If we find ourselves running away from a church, people that have committed to care for you, to love you, then you're in trouble. There's, there's not a, it's not a complicated math, right? Either you run towards God or you run away from him. And that's why we find David here running away from God into the enemy territory. 1 Samuel 21.10, And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And do you know where Gath is? Gath is Goliath's hometown. Gath is a Philistine town. Imagine that, right? David here coming along to this city with the sword of Goliath, right? Walking into the hometown of Goliath, his sworn enemy. Just a chapter ago, David was in killing Philistines, right? Killing Goliath. Now, out of fear, he runs to the enemy, thinking he'll be safe there. And as if he forgot about it, carrying the Goliath sword in Goliath's hometown, Philistines surely did not forget about that. I mean, he's carrying the sword of their fallen hero, right? There's no disguise there. He's flaunting it. And here's a guy who killed 200 of their fellow countrymen so he could get married. Look at what it says in verse 11. The servants of Kish said to him, Is not this David, uh, yes, he is, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. So here's David. If he didn't see it before, he probably gets it, right? He probably sees people eyeing him. Like, why would he come to this city of all places? I mean, flaunting this sword as if it's going to protect them. So the verse 12 tells us again, David, who once instilled fear in the hearts of Philistines, is now gripped with the same fear himself. Verse 12 says, When David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So what does he do? Does he cry out to the Lord? Does he repent? Does he run away from this city? Because you're heading to trouble. He does not. And the next verse is as crazy as it could get. Verse 13. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gates and let his spittle run down his beard, because he was spitting himself, letting all the drool come down his beard. Can you imagine this? God's anointed, one who struck fear in the hearts of Philistines, now acting insane before their sworn enemy. This also reminds us again of the madness of Saul, the madness, ravishing spirit of Saul, unkingly action of Saul, that led to pursue David, to kill him, to bring David here now. And in the process of fleeing this madman, David begins to resemble Saul in his madness, 
this insaneness. And that's why we often say about sin, we lost our mind. Sin has corrupted our soul. We're insane. We lost who we were meant to be. In a recent Atlantic Journal article, Anne Applebaum, a renowned reporter, who's known for her writing on the former Soviet Union and international matters, wrote about complicity, complicity when it comes to our culture today. And she writes about the history of two men in particular in the early Eastern Germany, Wolfgang uh, Leonhard and Marcus Wolf. And she writes that these two were sons of East German communist elite, educated in the Soviet Union at the pinnacle of their careers. These two men actually met and talked about the experiences of communism's effect in Soviet Union and soon coming effect in East Germany and East Berlin. And in their conversation, they experienced terrible poverty and inequality that this communism brought. They believed in what they were taught, but they saw the effect of it all. The practice was falling short and realized it was all lie. So what did these two men do? Wolfgang Leonhard risked his life, fled East Germany, and later became a famous Yale professor, beloved by former President George Bush, who shaped his view. But Marcus Wolf, knowing all this, chose complicity out of fear of losing his status and became East Germany's top spy carrying out his false ideas. You know what this article really struck me and challenged me was this, talked a lot about political stuff as well, but how easily can one fail and fall and even make excuses for our flaws and our sin? How easily can we do away with our convictions and fall into the trap of sin? And we see this not only in the politics today in our complicity, not only in the racial injustice, but we also see this in our day-to-day -day living. How easily we fall into sin of adultery, unfaithfulness. How easily we fall into sin of pornography. How easily we fall into sin of hatred towards our neighbors. How easily we fall into the trap of lying, deceiving, bearing false witness. How easily we fall into all kinds of sins that entangle us. Yes, we all are wrestling with sin, but the fear often drives us away from running to Christ and rather makes us into monsters we hope to fight against. David's fear and flaw reveal to us that no one is immune from falling into sin, even the best of us here. Right? When pushed, when tempted, we fail and we fall, just like David did. And that's why Hebrew writer warns us in Hebrews 3:12 by saying, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Sin is crouching at the door, waiting to pounce. Even the most godly of us will struggle with fear, doubt, and selfishness. And that's why, furthermore, again, you and I need one another. Just as Pastor Mari pictured for us last week, we need Jonathans. 
who will risk friendships to rebuke us, to confront us. That's why you and I need prayers to receive prayers. You know, I find myself in these situations too. And quite often than not, when I talk to many of you, many of my, myself too, when we say we're struggling in our walk with the Lord, when we're wrestling with sin, always the simple question is, are you reading the word? Are you praying? Do you have community? Do you have people speaking into your life? And quite often than not, many of us say, no, I'm not. I have not read the Bible in a while. I'm not praying. I have no one speaking into my life. How do we expect to fight sin that easily entangles us and when we're not living in God's grace? Why do we expect to overcome the struggles of the day when we fail to recognize what God is doing in our lives? That's why you and I need the word of the Lord. That's why you and I need to be in worship. Do you get that? God doesn't really need you to tune into live stream worship. It's fine. He'll be fine, right? Like you coming to live stream on time, that's not what he needs to be God. It says the rocks will cry out if we don't. But what we get to do this morning, church, is that you get to be in this. I'm not talking about me preaching and you listening, right? I'm not as conceited like that, right? It's about God speaking to us and you get to be in that presence and to claim that promise that when two or three are gathered, even in your homes, his presence is near you so that you are reminded of God's grace despite our failures as our kids hang all over us, as we're distracted by live stream, as we are heartbroken by pandemic, as we're disappointed by the racial injustice that doesn't seem to get better, as we sit under God's grace, we're reminded that he, won, the one who began a good work in you, will carry it out to completion. We're reminded once again that despite our failures and flaws, it's not about how well I go through this in my life, but whom am I holding on to? Who is holding on to me as I go through this life? And that's where we find the freedom, freedom that comes from being in his family. And that's what David is reminded again as he finds freedom in his final stop of today's story. Freedom in Abdalam. 1 Samuel 22, verse 1, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Abdalam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. Now David finds himself in the cave of Abdalam, a town in the low hills of West Judah. You see that he's getting closer and closer to Judah, right? Uh, 12 miles east of Gath. And this place eventually becomes David's stronghold for the time. And from his stronghold, David experiences freedom that is found when you're in God's hand. And there's three ways God shows grace to David here. First, it comes in his experience through having to lead people just like him. Notice who follows David here. Verse 2. And everyone who was in distress, like David. Everyone who was in debt, like David. Everyone who was bitter in soul, perhaps like David, gathered to him. And he became captain over them or commander over them, and there are with him about 400 men. And if David thought he's going to run away from his troubles, 
gonna run away from this so that he could be in this place where he's not gonna deal with that. Guess what? All kinds of people who share the same struggles come. He cannot get away from them and he's called to lead them. And this is grace, church, because all these misfits, all this grumbling of the hearts, all this are broken in the hearts, become strong fighting army of David in the later chapters. And as he leads them, as he gathers them, as he transforms them into this mighty fighting army, he gets the first-hand experience dealing with their hearts and their struggle. Church, perhaps many of us shouldn't be disappointed and frustrated when we run into all kinds of sin in the church, right? Perhaps we should not be disappointed because chances are you have that too. But also, church is a place where all kinds of sinners are welcome to come. So if you come to church expecting Kumbaya, amazing place where everyone's holy, that's not church, right? That's heaven to come. We long for that. We ought to fight for that. But we gather because we're in absolute need of our healer, our savior. And that's grace. That you could come as who you are with all your burdens broken, bitter in your soul, indebted, distress, can come be transformed to be the mighty warriors for God's kingdom. David experiences this at this man gather. Second way David experiences this is the grace he experiences in Moab. David knows that the lifestyle in caves and the danger that he's facing is not fit for his aging parents. So what does he do? He finds refuge for them with the king of Moab. In verse 3, he says, When David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, it's a long journey, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother stay with you until I know what God will do for me. So he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. The question is, why is king of Moab so favorable to David? Like, who's not even a king? He's running away. So what does he have to gain to provide this favor for him? Remember Ruth, great-grandmother of David? She was a Moabitess. And we cannot surely fully assure that this is the reason why, because this text doesn't say it exactly. But I cannot not see the obvious connection. And perhaps just because perhaps God's grand story includes Ruth being Moabitess for moments such as this, providing this grace in delivering his parents is another reminder for David that God will take care of him. God will take care of him. Even before he was born, God ordained all this event. So at this moment, his parents are rescued by things that are out of his control. That's grace. And final grace David experiences, the freedom, is through the word of God again. God still speaks to David. And in this time, first time in these chapters, God's word is mentioned explicitly. God still spoke to David despite his flaws and fears. Verse 5, then the prophet Gad said to David, do not remain in the stronghold. Depart, go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Herath. 
for the first time in this chapter, David does what the anointed king is supposed to do. Listen, obey, move. Listen, obey, and move. Where? Back to the land of Judah. Place where he is supposed to be. The return of the king begins. What grace is this church? What a story. Not a perfect hero who is able to overcome coming out victorious like Goliath, slaying Philistine, destroying superhero, but tattered, broken, discouraged, acting like a madman, insane. What a story. And David writes about this later on in Psalm 34 and 56, referencing his experience. And this is what he writes. Psalm 34, 9. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. Fear who? Fear the Lord. For those who fear him have no lack. Verse 22. The Lord redeems the life of his servant. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Psalm 56, verse 4. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Verse 11, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can men do to me? Did you notice the fear of men transformed into fear of God? And with confidence he cries out, those who take refuge in him, will not be condemned. Those who find refuge in him shall not be destroyed. What can men do to me? This is whom David is called to be, men after God's own heart. And this is your call, church. This is your call. Be freed in grace to fear God rather than men. Speaking of discipline, it's really hard for me to discipline my son because he's so cute, kind of looks like me too. Um, I'm just kidding, he's not cute because he looks like me. Uh, but I see a much wiser and stronger person in my life, thankfully, my wife, who lovingly disciplines him. And then she sat down with him, and this event happened. I just ran to her and said, guess what he did? You know, your turn. No, I, we're working on this, right? With the clear consequences and disciplines laid out, my wife said, um, this is what you're going to face. No iPad for about a week or so, or a month or so, whatever it may be. And of course, he bursts out in tears. Right? It's always those tears. Right? And there's that fear you can see that grips him. Because in his young age, he cannot separate punishment. He cannot separate the consequence from broken relationship. So he's fearful that not only his actions have consequences, but now that there's a brokenness that's permanent in his mind. That there's a fear that turns into tears. That's when my wise wife opens her arms and hugs him and reminds him that she loves him. And even through his tears, even through his failures, even in the consequences, the relationship is restored. And there is overflow of loving 
response of obedience when the child experienced loving embrace of his parents. Church, our Father invites us back into our relationship and our failures. He's not holding punishment. He replaces our holy, unholy fear with that of holy fear of God with an open arm of embrace. The goal isn't to be like David, who consistently fails. The goal isn't to be better than David either, and not to give in to our flaws. This story reminds us that God is able to sustain and save someone like David. If God can work through this failure, someone who's full of fear, how much more should we throw ourselves at the foot of the cross? And again, ultimate sign of grace is this. David is a special figure in the scripture. His suffering is a foreshadowing of the greatest suffering of God, his true anointed King Christ. And in Jesus, the perfect and better David, he is the king who will not just get the best of us and leave us to die like the priest of Nob. He's the king who will not leave us behind and use us for his gain. He's not only the provider of our daily substance, he is the, also the living bread of God. So whoever remains in him will not perish but have eternal life. For our Savior gave himself up for us to the point of death so you and I can live in him. And that's grace. That's the promise of scripture. That's what he calls us to follow together. May we find that freedom at the foot of the cross. And may that grace free us to boldly and confidently approach his throne, be renewed in our mind, to re-engage our world with renewed dignity that comes from Christ. Let's pray. Father, we, we confess more often than not, we are just like David in these chapters. We're like Saul in previous chapters. More often than not, Lord, we run away from you rather than towards you. More often than not, Lord, we use others. We condemn others for our gain. We fight for my own rights rather than caring for those who are in need. Father, we confess we sometimes align ourselves behind an ideology and make it all about that rather than making Christ at the center of our lives. Lord, quite often than not, Lord, we place our own desires above yours. We want to hide our sin rather than expose it, rather than being humble before others and receive counsel and love, we tend to push them away. Rather than running towards the place of God, we find ourselves running away further and further, blaming others rather than repenting of our sin. Father, oh, how long we need to be in this place. Oh, how long we need to come to the throne of God's grace. Oh, how long we need to come and to be, receive forgiveness. We thank you that you are our prodigal father who runs after the prodigal son. You are a father who runs after those who are broken and contrite in their hearts. We are a father that promises the kingdom of God for those who are found in you. So we thank you for that truth. May our church reflect that. May this place be full of sinners redeemed by grace. Saints, not by our own might, but the might of God's grace. May that be true of us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.